Welcome to Celebration Church's podcast. We hope this helps you to know God better and trust Him more. To learn more about Celebration Church, please visit us at celebrationchurchlive.com. We're in the fourth week um, of a series uh, that we're looking at the poetic language of the scriptures because the scriptures were written and given to us, handed down and preserved for us so that we could grow in our relationship with God of knowing him and understanding him in a deeper way. And so we've led with this idea. If you're tracking along with your bulletin and you're just gonna watch on the screen or follow along with our digital notes, we've led with this idea that God uses things that we see and know to help us to understand him, even though God is bigger and more wonderful than the things that we can see and know. He wants to reveal himself to us, but he understands he's got to do it within the context of our ability to grasp it, to connect with it, to understand it, and, and works with that framework. And so he, he meets us, praise God, right where we are. And we've launched with Romans chapter one, verse 20, which reminds us that for since the creation of the world, this truth, it predates the, the, the rocks in our world. It predates our solar system. It predates the universe. This truth is older than creation itself. It's for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, which are his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Who God is and his love and his, his nature has been so displayed in what he has made that if any of us would just have a desire to recognize, you know what, um, there's, maybe there's a creator in the world. I, I know I didn't do it. I'm gonna open myself up. Lord, are you out there? He will direct our paths. There's so much that's there. If we'll just have a little bit of humility, then man, he'll just meet us that right there and begin to show us and reveal himself to us. Now, part of the language that can be uncomfortable in this space is his invisible qualities, okay? And we're like, okay, God, that, that, that kind of bothers me. But here's the truth. Here's the truth. Is everybody you love the most, you love them for their invisible qualities. That's what you like about them. Their sense of humor, their likes, their dislikes, the way that y'all connect, you like their invisible qualities. You may have connected with them based on some sort of visible quality, you know? You know, I mean, you may have connected, you know, one of, one of your, you know, bros at the gym because they were wearing a Dallas Cowboys t-shirt. And you're like, all right, you know, I, I'm into the Cowboys and I, I can connect with you, you know? Or, or, you know, you may have connected with your spouse or the person that, you know, you're married to because of their visible qualities. You're like, woo, you're good looking. I want to get to know you. And so, but you fell in love with them based on their invisible qualities of their personality and all of those different things. Here's the truth, is also the people you wanna distance yourself from the most. You want to distance yourself based on their invisible qualities. Um, we, don't, we won't tolerate 
Praise God, we won't tolerate it in our culture. The idea of distancing ourselves based on someone's visible qualities. That's called prejudice. It's, it's disgusting. We don't want anything to do with that. But when we, all of a sudden we've had some experience with somebody and we find out that their invisible qualities aren't something we want to be around. They're like, well, you, they're just a jerk. Well, they're, they're just hard to get along with. They're just this or this. And then we begin to distance ourselves from them based on their invisible qualities. And we feel fine keeping them at an arm's distance based on their invisible qualities because that's more something they feel like that they could do something about. Well, God wants us to know him and to connect with him on that deep level, not a surface level, but a deep level, an invisible qualities kind of level. And with that, because once we begin to know God's nature and who he is, then that shapes and directs our expectations, what we think we're gonna be able to, to connect with God on and, and how he will move in our lives. And, and we don't have to be super mature to, to get that that's gonna make a difference. Um, Cutie and I, that's what I call my wife. And so, you know, some people think, you know, what's, who is Cutie? You know, Cutie is my wife, please. And so, just so we know that. And so, um, I only call her that. And so, Cutie and I have seven kids, um, ranging from 27 years old down to eight years old. And um, so, there's always just stuff going on in our home and has been for decades. And so, um, and then our middle uh, son, Weston, who is 23, um, when he was three, so this, golly, the story is two decades old. Um, when he was three years old, uh, one day he was hanging out with his older sister, Brooklyn, and she was five. And so they decided that they were just gonna just make up stories. They were just gonna tell stories to each other. So they're sitting there, you know, and telling stories, and they've got their little cups of Kool-Aid, and they're sitting there just talking and, and acting so big and telling stories. And Brooklyn tells her made-up story to Weston, and little three-year-old Weston enjoys uh, her story, and then it's his turn, and and. Uh, Weston begins to tell his story and Brooklyn's enjoying her Kool-Aid, sipping her Kool-Aid. And, and um, Weston's story involves, like a little three-year-old boy, it involves a dog. So that he has this dog that he's talking about and this dog is, is wonderful and all this. And then, of course, there's, there's, gotta, be a, there's gotta be a tension and a good storytelling. And then the wolf comes in. And the wolf comes in and is going to attack the dog. And Brooklyn is like going along with it. She takes a drink. And then Weston gets to the climax of the story. And here's, the, here's this dog. And then here's the wolf. And then here comes Jesus and shoots the wolf with a gun. And so, and she just spews. She just spews uh, Kool-Aid. Comes out her nose. It just goes everywhere. And, and so, but here's what little three-year-old Weston understood. Three-year-old Weston understood that Jesus is on your side. That Jesus is going to show up. Maybe he's going to be packing, but he is going to be on your side. And so, and that no matter how, how messed up, how ugly, how tense it looks, Jesus can show up and change the course of the story. I love that my little three-year-old boy, when he's writing his own story, Jesus was the hero and Jesus handled it. Now we had to have some, you know, we had to have some clarifying conversations and, and not, you know, not have Rambo Jesus, you know. Uh, you know, we already knew there was little baby Jesus 
Jesus in the manger, and so, but, but now there's Rambo Jesus, you know, who, who shows up with his, with his uh, AR or whatever and handles the wolf. And so, but at least he understood his, his understanding that Jesus was there, that Jesus is faithful, that Jesus can be relied on even in our toughest times was part of his framework. And as he begins to tell this story, praise God, he included Jesus. And his story and the, our framework is so vital. What we think about God will determine how we connect with God. And so God wants to, to change that and rewrite that for us. And because the scriptures are written, then he doesn't give us some like actual pictures to be able to change the way we think about things. He actually has to communicate that through visual, I mean, through written visuals, through metaphors, through word pictures to be able to help us to do that. And the scriptures are full of metaphors, just full of them. But we have to remember the purpose of a metaphor. The purpose of a metaphor is to communicate an idea. The idea is what is wanting to com be communicated, not all of a sudden extrapolate all of this unnecessary, unconnected stuff out of the metaphor that is trying to be communicated. And, and sadly, in the Christian world, a lot of times we can begin to over-interpret the metaphor. Before we get into today's metaphor, I just want to show you that you know we, we understand intuitively the limits because if you have somebody in your life that shows up into your life and and man and they, they just they just make things better they just make you smile when they walk in the door you know and all of a sudden you feel a little bit of a, a little bit lighter in life when this person comes around you might look at that person this this phrase has been around for a long long time and say well you are a ray of sunshine you might say that and immediately if somebody tells you that you're like Oh, thank you. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's wonderful. That, that's awesome. And, and we, we get it. We understand what that means. You, you, you brightened my day, okay? That all of a sudden, you, you know, sunshine helps things to thrive, you know? That, that, that carries on. And, you know, all of a sudden, man, you, you just helped lift me, just helped me to thrive. Sometimes that metaphor might even show up when somebody's had a rough go, when somebody's had a rough day, and it feels like it's been a dark period, and then anybody who has stayed up all night and watched the sun come up, you know, that all of a sudden those first rays of sunshine in the morning uh, are just so incredibly beautiful and, and, and sweet. And, and on some places, it feels even, even spiritual. It feels even just so, so meaningful to, to see the breaking of a dawn in our lives. And when all of a sudden we experience that, somebody helps to break us out of a dark period, you know, we would say, man, you're... Your ray of sunshine. And, and it's always this thing that's meaningful, but that's where the metaphor stops. We don't mean anything else by that. But if we were to overanalyze it and to overbreak it down, we could begin to, to think about it as something else. Like, you know, that also, of course, a ray of sunshine that comes from way out, out in the solar system. And, you know, somebody says, well, you're a ray of sunshine, we can go, you know, like all of a sudden think they mean you're not from this planet. Well, that, that could be true about a ray of sunshine, but that's not what we, what we meant, you know? A, a thing of true of a ray of sunshine is, is you get too much sunshine and 
You get a sunburn. Somebody says, you're a ray of sunshine. You're like, think that, oh, okay, you know, you can handle me in limited quantities. That's, that's what this means. Too much of me and you'll get burned. And so that, that's not what we mean, but you could overanalyze it and try to interpret it. Sadly, there are people um, who are actually allergic to the sun. They have to stay completely shielded. They break out. It's, it's a terrible, terrible condition, and they're allergic to the sun. And if somebody had that in their mindset and said, well, aren't you a ray of sunshine? That you're like, well, you're actually detrimental to some people. Um, you know, in fact, you know, there's a lot of people that cause skin cancer, you know. You're actually kind of cancer in this world. Um, no, that's not what anybody means. Nobody means that when they say you're a ray of sunshine. It means you, you're a ray of sunshine. You, you brighten my day. But if you overanalyze it, you begin to try to get stuff out of, there, out of the metaphor that was never meant, that was never said, okay? So with that, then we are going to get into a metaphor that I believe a lot of times is overanalyzed, and a lot of times there are things brought in and it'll begin to determine how we interact with God and what we expect out of God. And it can create an unhealthy framework. And as we look at this metaphor, it's the metaphor of the potter and the clay. And the potter and the clay shows up throughout the scriptures over and over and over again. It shows up in prophetic things in Isaiah and um, Jeremiah. It shows up in different spaces and um, shows up in the New Testament as well, this idea uh, with the potter and the clay. Um, and it's one of those things because uh, creating a, you know, a pot, especially you know, with a, a potter at the wheel and, and the process that goes into it, um, there's a lot of steps. There's a lot of things. And if we overanalyze this, then we can try to break down every little step that's created to take a lump of clay and turn it into some sort of finished product and say all of those types of steps are at work in our lives as God is this potter. And never in the scriptures does it talk about all of those other steps. It's just his hands forming us. That's the metaphor. The metaphor is super simple. We get it. It's real easy. It's his hands forming our lives. That is the whole entirety of the metaphor. It's not the process of making a pot. It doesn't get in there. There are processes that the scriptures talk about. The scriptures talk about that, a, that, it's like, that the word is like a seed going in and first the, first the blade, then the, then the ear, and then the full kernel in the ear. When the scriptures want us to get the full process of a metaphor, it breaks it down. So it's not that all of a sudden that, oh, well, God has to take the clay and beat the clay and get all of the air pockets out of it and has to sit there and pump water into it and be able to do all these different things. And then he's got to get you centered and, and, and then he's got to sit there and, and then he's got to put you on a drying shelf. And once he's shaped you, he's going he's gonna to put you on this rack and he's going to uh, just kind of leave you alone for a little while. That's, that, none of those steps are brought up in any of this. God doesn't sit there and work with us for a little while and then ignore us for a little while. That's not God is that hit. The metaphor is God's hands are always on our lives if we will let him. 
That's the metaphor. He's the potter, we're the clay. It is the action of God shaping and forming us. That's the metaphor. Not the rest of us, not all of a sudden him finally testing us in the fire. That's not in there. That's not what is said in the potter and the clay metaphor, okay? There are, there's, so let's make sure we stay focused on this because God wants to shape our lives like a potter shapes the clay. That is the beautiful thing. And praise God, he's continually doing that. Isaiah 64, eight says, yet you, Lord, are our father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. You read around that Isaiah 64 passage, um, that's the only time that that shows up. It's just that metaphor. Your hand is forming us. You're forming us. That's what is being said. That's it. We don't have to extrapolate anything further. In Romans chapter nine, we see this, and Paul is actually quoting the Old Testament in this space, and in Romans chapter nine, verse 20, he says, but who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it? Why did you make me like this? So here it is, he's calling out people, us who get upset with the way God made us. God, why didn't you do me different? Why didn't you create me different? I don't like me. Sadly, there is, a, there is just an epidemic of people who have this conversation with God. Whether you actually say it or it just happens inside, just inner grumblings, not being cool with, the, with what God made you, wanting to delve deeper into how God made you instead of griping about that the way God made you. God's called us to explore how he made us. He says, does not, does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Now, all of a sudden, we can get kind of sideways about this, okay? That all of a sudden, God has some special people, some special things, and then just the common, just the ordinary, and God, I tell you what, you know, if your hands at work in my life, I'm ordinary. I fall in the ordinary category, and then all these people I admire, and these people that are on this other, that they're the ones who are the special ones, and, and all of a sudden, we can begin to, to grumble and be upset with the way God made us, and if we don't read this correctly, we can think that all of a sudden, there's these special, and there's these Non-special, but what it says, it says special use and common use. It's all created for use. And the truth is, is every aspect of your life, these things take place in, okay? If your closet looks the way you want your closet to look, I don't know if it does or not, um, but if it does, if it looks the way you want it to look, you have items of special use, okay? You got men, you got your suit, Okay, um, wear it as little as possible. <laughs> Let's just be honest about it. And so, and then you have special shoes that go along with that special suit. Ladies, you have your special dresses. Every lady wants that, you know, that little black dress that fits just right. And she's got the, the shoes that match and go with that, okay? Um, and if you're running to go pick something up at Target, um, you don't throw that on, you know? You don't throw on the little black dress and put the, the heels on and, you know, stretch your stuff down to Target. You don't, you don't do that. 
there's other stuff in the closet for common use. And that stuff that's of common use is just as important to you. It's just as important to you. That's where you live the fullness of your life. Yes, there can be some special moments made in those special clothes, but the fullness of your life is in the common stuff when, you know, when you, you put on the yoga pants and the frumpy shirt and you, you know, go, go about with the messy bun and, you know, the guys just put on, you know, their gym shorts and a t-shirt and, you know, put on some slides and you call it good. You know, that that is where life is lived and both of those things are functioning. Let's just be honest. If you could have the garage you want, if you could have the garage you want, have the cars you want, you would have a car that was special use. It'd be the car that, man, it just comes out on the weekends. And then you have a car you like for common use. You know, you don't want a car you hate for common use. But you want a car you really like and you identify with. But man, no, there's the special car. We get that. In fact, in fact, the people who are closest to you in your life, they're close to you. They're close to you because they're involved in the special moments of your life and the common moments of your life. That's what makes them so special to you. They don't just pop in on the big moments. And we know this is true. We know this is true because we've all heard the term, you know, Disney dad or Disney mom, you know, when families aren't together and all of a sudden one parent just shows up for the special stuff and isn't there for the peanut butter and jelly stuff and isn't there for the common stuff. And what we want is we want the people closest in our lives to be there for the special moments and for the common moments. It isn't that all of a sudden that one is more than the other. And the truth is that if we were to, to go to your grandma's house because she had special china and then she had just the regular everyday stuff, okay? And so we don't do that in our generation near as much anymore. We have something in the middle that we just like the way it looks and we use it for everything. And so, but grandma, she had the special plates and then in the South, she had paper plates, okay? And at grandma's house, she had those cheap paper plates. They had to use three of them because they would soak all the way through. And so, and that you, you, ha you had to hold them with both hands because you pick it and it's just, everything goes. It just, it's gone. And so, but I guarantee, I guarantee if those plates could talk in grandma's cupboard, and they'd, call, they'd be jealous of one another. The paper plates, of course, they're jealous. They're jealous, the, the common ordinary plates, they're jealous of the fine china because on the special occasions, on the anniversaries, on the Christmas dinners, on all of those things where grandma wants everybody to come over, man, they come out and everybody looks their best and have all of these different things and, and the paper plates are just feeling so abused and unwanted and, and just jealous of that. But I guarantee the special purpose plates, they're watching the paper plates, they're watching the normal everyday plates, the common use plates, be a part of all of the laughter, be a part of all of the daily life. That every time the cupboards open, the little, the little special purpose plates play, pick me, pick me, and they pick the everyday use plate. And it's just because a part of it, they're both significant. The special thing is significant, common use is significant. Our lives are built 
on the things we use day in and day out, commonly used. God did not create any insignificant vessels. He didn't create any insignificant vessels. And yes, there are some that are used for some special purposes, but those that are used for common use are making a huge impact in the world. And if we'll step up and embrace our common use, you'll see God use us every single day in our lives. We need to embrace it. We don't need to be upset. That's what this whole passage is doing. Paul is calling them out, saying, why are you upset? Why are you griping at the potter? Because he decided to make something of common use for you. He wanted you used every day. He wanted you a part of everything. He wanted you a part. Maybe you don't stand out. Maybe nobody remembers your name, but you were a part and you were making it happen. And he knows he's the potter. He recognizes it. And we have to learn to embrace that space. And with that, we have the whole point is let the potter make you the way he wants to make you. We want to upload our little design to him and say, make me like this. Do this in my life, Lord. You guys, I, honestly, you would be so much more fulfilled if you just followed the way I want to go. If you embraced what you would be so much more fulfilled in life. Isaiah 45, nine says, does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say the potter has, has no hands? He, he, can't, he can't even do it, he, he has no hands. Isaiah twenty nine sixteen. you turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, you did not make me. Can the pot say to the potter, you, you know, nothing. You know, you, don't have, you shouldn't tell me what to do with my life. Yes, he's the one who made. That's the whole point of this metaphor is us being the clay need to let the potter lead and direct and to guide. Here is the kind of the longest passage we see of the potter and the clay imagery, and we see it in Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 1. And it says, and this is what this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you a message. So Jeremiah follows that. He has no idea what's on God's heart, but he goes down to the potter's house and he watches. Okay, and then God begins to speak to him. He says, so I went down to the potter's house and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was, um, he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. And so the potter formed it into another pot and shaped it as it seemed best to him. And then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, can I not do with Israel as this potter does, declares the Lord, like the clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. Just because he wanted Jeremiah to see it, the pot was not going in the direction the potter wanted to go. And guess what? The potter didn't just say, oh, forget you, clay. I need some new clay over here. No, he kept working and refashioned it into the way it was supposed to be. The potter would not give up on the clay if the clay would let the potter work. And the rest of that chapter, the rest of that chapter is God pleading with the people of Israel, let me be the potter. 
you are marred. You have marred yourself. You have messed up. You are bringing destruction and pain into your own life. Let me remake you. This isn't sealed. This isn't done. I can fix this. Let me fix it. And verse 12 says that they just stayed, said, nope, we're going to stay with our own plans. We're going to stay with our stubborn hearts. And Israel went that way. And God, wanting to be the potter, wanting to reshape, wanting to fix what was marred, they refused. Israel, Israel refused. The whole image all the way through is the potter having his hands on the clay saying, I'm not giving up. Maybe it doesn't look like what it needs to look like. Maybe it doesn't look like, maybe it hasn't arrived yet. Maybe there's something got bumped along the way. But if you let God's hand stay at work in your life, he will bring it to what is on his heart to do. Don't judge the work before it's completed. Stay in God's hands. Let him continue to work. In fact, that's the beauty of the entire gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.17 reminds us that therefore if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. God wanting to make us new. That is the heart of the gospel. The hand of the potter still at work in the clay, still shaping still forming, still directing. That's the heart. See, God is committed to reshaping us into what he intended from the very beginning. And this shows itself through in different encounters and different connections. Here in Matthew 22, verse 15, we have the Pharisees and trying to trap Jesus. It says, and then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Uh, Teacher, they said, uh, we know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. And you aren't swayed by others because you paid no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Now, here's what they were doing, okay? Because all of Israel hated paying the taxes to, to Rome. They hated that Rome was coming in, taking their hard-earned money and carrying it off to perpetuate an empire that they wanted nothing to do with. They hated it, and all of the Zionist, hardcore Israelites wanted nothing more than to revolt and to end that. And they knew that if Jesus said, yeah, pay the, go ahead, pay the imperial tax, um, that, that he, would, he would quit being popular. People would be so mad at him. In fact, some of the radicals might even take him out. But if he said, no, don't pay the taxes, don't do that. We're Israel, we don't need no Rome. Um, then Rome's gonna say, no, uh, you, stop that mess, you can't do that. And Rome would put an end to Jesus' teaching and preaching and ministry. Rome would stop it. So they're hoping like, either way, this is a win for us. We just need him to weigh in on this and say which way to go. And, but Jesus, knowing their, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. He says, let me see it. Show me this thing. Give, give me a coin. He says, they brought him a denarius, and he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Whose image, whose words have made this? Caesar's, they replied. 
And then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. That denarius started in Rome. Somebody crafted it, made it, shaped it into the, into the image of Caesar, wrote Caesar's words on that and distributed it to send it back. Send it back to Rome. Give it back to Caesar. But give to God what is God's. What has God's image stamped on it? Where does God's image show up? What needs to be yielded back to God? He said, let, let Caesar control his stuff. Let God have his stuff. Well, we know where that shows up. Genesis 1:27. So God created mankind in his own image. The image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. Jesus is here. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to do this. He gets out of the trap and says, give yourself back to God. You know what you need to do? You need to give yourself back to God. You need to take the image of God stamped on the inside of you. You're created in his image. Let him have you. That's the whole point of this encounter. They turned it, they tried to trap him and he turned it into a message of repentance and get him back to where they ought to be all along. Jesus took every opportunity he could to turn people back to the Father, to say, hey, you know what? Give yourself back to God. Second Corinthians 317 says this, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, we think about who he is, are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. As we let God continue to work in our lives, as we let the potter have access to this clay, life has marred us, hurt has marred us, sin and destruction has marred us, but he wants to reshape us. He wants to bring us back and turning us back into the image of his son, bringing us back into his image. That is the story, that is the metaphor, that's the heart of God of the potter and the clay. See, God shows that his love and grace are available to everyone by placing them in jars of clay. All through the scripture when clay is talked about, it's not referring to the finished product. How wild is it that God wants to put his treasure, the truth of who he is in his presence into unfinished pots, into unfinished jars. What a beautiful thing that he wants to place this treasure in you and I, he wants to place his treasure in us. And our bottom line is this today, is that we are the clay, so let him have the say. That is what the whole metaphor of the, pot and the pot, potter and the clay is about, is we need to be, stay the clay, always be the clay, and let him have the say. And that with that, he will continue to bring us back to him over and over and over again. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Celebration Church. We hope you'll stay connected by following us online. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.